Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. This is episode 49 of the Feeling Good podcast, and we have a treat for you today. Um, I have David here with me, of course, but uh, I also have uh, Dr. Matthew May. Hi, Matt. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here, Fabrice. And uh, we are doing, um, after people having um, really praised our live session with Mark, we're doing a live session today with Marilyn. And uh, you're in for another treat, really. So um, I just wanted to um, briefly introduce what we're going to do today. Um, the uh, the session is uh, with uh, one of uh, uh, David and Matt's uh, student, Marilyn, who has been diagnosed with uh, um, lung cancer. And uh, so she came and did some work on that. The segment we'll listen to today um, will be the um, the testing and empathy part of the session, and we're going to uh, talk a little bit about what happens in there. But uh, before that, um, I wanted to kind of introduce Matt. All right, just for our listeners, I just want to mention that we are recording this at a different time um, than uh, the other part of uh, the uh, interview and for the session. Uh, so the audience may hear slightly different uh, sound quality. But um, anyhow, um, Matt, thank you so much for participating in this uh, live session. And, uh, you know, everyone knows David and they know a little bit about me, but uh, they haven't met you yet. So if you could perhaps uh, tell us, uh, you know, what you do, how, how did you come to know team? Thank you, Fabrice. It's, it's quite a pleasure to be here, um, and thanks for coming into my office to, to interview me and talk talk a little bit about team. I um, first met David uh, when he came onto the inpatient psychiatric ward at Stanford, where I was a resident. And um, so you trained in psychiatry, like he did, yeah. I did, and and um, he he came there just to volunteer. He's been volunteering his time on the adjunct clinical faculty there for several decades, and um, and he came to teach residents uh, how to empathize with, with um, folks who were suffering from depression, anxiety, and uh, relationship problems primarily. And what I saw there was pretty fascinating to me. He, he had a more systematic and, um, I think, effective way of empathizing and listening to patients than I had encountered prior to that. And in fact, if anything, um, I, I felt uh, like I was witnessing something akin to Michael Jordan uh, in, in uh, basketball, something, yeah. something far ahead of the, the game that was being played up to that time. So I, I decided that I would start working with David, and, and, and he allowed me to train with him, even though I was just a medical student, and his normal training seminars were for residents. And then one, one memory I have from that time, uh, was that, um, you know, we would try to set our egos aside and practice with very difficult patient scenarios where maybe they would be scared themselves, angry themselves and, and criticizing us. And then we would do our best to understand and listen, um, and, and get immediate feedback. And this, this type of training was just phenomenal because we could see right there, the errors that we were making and then work hard to improve and uh, do a better job of connecting and listening listening to patients who were really suffering. Uh, but the kind of game changer for me uh, was one day I was um, on an OB-GYN clerkship, and I'd been up all night helping deliver uh, young young babies into the world, and I was pretty exhausted, and, and uh, I was kind of in a protective mode of children, and walking out of the hospital, I noticed that there was an older gentleman 
uh, into holding hands with a young man and, and taking him into the hospital, carrying a large uh, manila envelope. And the boy was pretty frightened. You could you could tell. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he the the man was getting frustrated with him, uh, and, and took the Manila envelope and swatted the boy right in the face with it in a, oh, in a way that was yeah. I think more shaming than than actually painful. Yeah. But I had no idea what to say or what to do. I just kind of froze up, and then I on the drive back I, I felt tremendous guilt and shame that I'd failed that young man. And I discovered David in the training room, as usual. And he um, was alone in it. That was a little bit odd. But he explained that the residents were off taking the pride exam. And that we didn't have to meet. Uh, but if if if, we, if I did want to meet, it would be a great opportunity for us to talk about. Um, or, or perhaps for me to experience the model, if there was anything bothering me. So, so he, that was your first experience, uh, first hand of the, the model? That's right. That's right. And within about two hours, my guilt was completely gone. Hmm. I felt completely better. And I had seen how we cling to our guilt and to our negative thinking right. and how to let go of that. And that was, that was quite miraculous for me. And I decided right there, if I could spend my life doing that and helping people in that way, I'd be, I'd be pretty much tickled and happy and uh, feel a lot of meaning and joy in my life. Hmm. And so, um, you, so you became a psychiatrist, and then you went into your own practice, right? That's that's right. Yeah. Now you you practice very differently from other psychiatrists, or for, from the majority of psychiatrists. How would you that's, characterize that? I think that's true, Fabrice. I um I spend very little time uh, prescribing medication, and most of the time that I spend with with my clients or patients, whatever you'd like to call them. Is, is spent trying to empathize, identify the, the problems in their lives, and understand them at a cognitive level and a behavioral level. And uh, so I'm mostly doing therapy uh, to help, yeah. help people with anxiety, depression, relationship problems, unwanted habits, and addictions. Yeah, so it's, it's somewhat unusual. You know, most of the psychiatrists that I deal with, I refer them out to give my uh, clients some medications. Um, so this is uh, really um, different from from uh, the majority of psychiatrists. And um, um, what did I want to say? Um, you know, David teaches his uh, Tuesday group uh, for clinicians. He also has a uh, a Wednesday group for for residents. But you also teach. That's right. That's one of the things I like to do more than almost anything. Um, I teach an online uh, group for therapists, and uh, I, I teach residents at Stanford and other trainees at Stanford. Yeah, and and I may add to this that you also has have you have taught me, and you have taught uh, a group of people who uh, met with you, um, kind of like the the same way David does that, and uh, I I have to to say that I'm still um, you know, doing some, some uh, training with you, um, more like a consultation group, um, and, uh, and we do this uh, as we go hiking. Yeah, that's been a tremendous pleasure uh, to do that. Just yesterday, we were up, up at the dish hiking. Yeah. And uh, I, I always notice that we, it never feels like we've walked anywhere because we're, we're so mentally engaged. That's right. The, the body does the job, and then we we get busy doing other things. That's right. That's <laughs> right. It's, it's been really fun doing that with you, Fabrice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I want to, to mention that because you really give a lot of your time and talent uh, so that uh, the rest of us can practice the, the Team CBT model, which as people have seen now after listening to the podcast for um, almost 50 episodes now um, has um, has really uh, for me has changed the way I, uh, revolutionized the way I, I do my practice. So I'm so glad to hear that. Um, I think it's one thing to help one person, but if I can help a therapist improve their game and uh, pass that on to many others, I feel like I'm a, a you know part of a spreading ripple uh, that, that there's a kind of domino effect, and I'm hoping that that's making the world a better place, that 
just as one person improves and feels better, yeah. that their family members feel that yeah. and feel that relief that that can spread outward. And so I'm so delighted to have anyone uh, training with me and learning, learning yeah. these methods. And um, just, just to add uh, to this, uh, for people who are interested, you have a practice in Menlo Park, and people can probably uh, Google you, Matthew May, MD, uh, on the Internet. Um, and uh, I also want to say, knowing you, that you have a quite, quite of a different style than David, and uh, people are about to discover this as you and David co-facilitate this uh, session with Marilyn. So um, thank you so much. I'm so glad to have you as part of this podcast. It's a pleasure, Fabrice. Thank you. All right. So let's uh, listen to the session. And so, um, Matt and David, um, if you could uh, maybe talk a little bit about what happens in this segment uh, you, you start with uh, Marilyn's brief mood survey, right? And the scores on, on this brief mood survey were fairly high. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And, and in a strange way, I, I always feel somewhat reassured when I see high mood scores because that means that the negative thoughts are quite active, uh, will be uh, easy to uh, access, yeah, and there, there's real work to be done. If someone comes in and they don't have elevated mood scores, I feel kind of concerned that maybe it would be uh, time wasted for them. But this, I felt, this is just wonderful that that Marilyn is uh, paradoxically is wonderful that she, that she's feeling this way today, so that so that we can really uh, offer her some meaningful help. I know it is a sort of paradox. Uh, one thing that I noticed, uh, and you may comment on this, David. When uh, when you did the live session with Mark, his scores on the mood survey were you know, not super elevated, and yet he did tremendous work. And so I'm wondering if that's because the 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 feelings were not really active when he started, or can you can you talk about this? Well, yeah, right. There's a lot of different ways to be uh, depressed and upset. In Mark's case, he he's a pretty chipper, happy, high functioning. And very warm individual, but when he thinks about his oldest son, who's not living with him, he has a, his family that he's living with now, but his oldest son from a previous marriage, he's never been able to get close to him. And when he thinks about that, he feels like a failure as a father. So it's kind of like this one thing is bothering him yeah. in an otherwise pretty fulfilled and, and uh, productive and joyful Alive, and, and so he's got to kind of zero in on on the thing that's bugging him to get really really upset. Yeah. Uh, other people are more in the in the zone that uh, Marilyn is in today, where where they're depressed and they've been depressed pretty much all day every day for for weeks or months, and and it's many more pervasive, yeah, you know, for, yeah, pervasive, and some people for years or, or many decades, and they they haven't even had had one happy yeah. one happy minute. And uh, sorry, you were going to say something. No. <laughs> um, I, had, I had another quick point about yes. the, the brief mood survey. Uh, another thing, when you hear the scores, when we start that part of the of the session, just see how just extremely severe the, the scores are uh, that that Marilyn uh, has been experiencing. They're they're really uh, as severe or more severe than many people that are hospitalized for for, for depression. Yeah, uh, and even some receiving electroconvulsive therapy. And one of the take-home messages is, is that you've you've got to be using these assessment tools to find out how your patients are are really feeling. And then another take-home message of it is that we're making ourselves accountable for the first time in the history of, of psychiatry and psychotherapy and psychology that we're trying to bring about change in today's session. And when I was a psychiatric resident, there was never any idea about that. You just people came and talked for weeks and months, and, and we never expected anything much to happen. We're going to try to bring about change in today's session. And so we're going to measure how is Marilyn feeling right now at the start of the session. And then at the end of the session, we'll measure it again. How is she feeling right now? So we'll get a, a before and after so we, so we can see to what extent was the session effective or, 
or, or ineffective. Yeah. And if therapists have the courage to do this, you can transform your, your clinical practice. But if you don't use this type of assessment device, you're, I think the, the potential for growth and improvement as a therapist is, 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 is very limited. It's so yeah. valuable to have that immediate feedback on how, yeah. how did that interaction with the patient affect them in reality, not how we just imagined that it affected them. Yeah, because the way we imagined it won't, won't be accurate. Right. And also, if you get the feedback right away when the session is fresh in mind, then, then you can use that for growth and learning. And if you fell short, then you can tr- try to improve next time. And if you hit a home run, you'll, you'll know to do more of that kind of thing uh, the next time. So your patients become your greatest teachers. Mm-hmm. This, this scale, these scales have also taught me just about the, the nature of our feelings. There's something kind of confusing that there's a list of negative feelings as well as a list of positive feelings. And sometimes we would imagine that those would be on the same same scale, but they're actually completely different scales right. yeah. that someone can feel simultaneously uh, very, very joyful uh, and very sad. Yeah. For example. Yeah. Yeah. Happiness is not the opposite of depression. It's a different dimension, and that's that's why we measure measure both of them on on the same scale. You can't assume that because someone's depression score is vastly improved, they're only a little bit depressed, and they're going to be happy. Because often the happiness score doesn't begin to go up until the depression is down near near zero. Actually. Yeah. So we could have things like a person would feel really joyful that their child was born. Uh, but simultaneously real freaked out and anxious at all the work they'd have to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good point. And uh, so, um, of course, uh, as we start the, this segment, uh, Marilyn has already um, brought her mood survey, as well as the daily mood log, uh, which also, when you look at the daily mood log, the, the emotions were all at 100%, and the belief and the thoughts were also at 100%. So, very elevated as well, and uh, and so you actually um, went into empathy on on both of those things, and also uh, asked Marilyn some questions about her situation, what was her state of mind, and and what was going on for her. One thing I noticed found that interesting because this is the first time I see you both, David and Matt, in the same room working together at the same time. So. I noticed the difference in style that was, uh, there was like a contrast where, you know, David is really, uh, um, you know, focusing on thought and feeling empathy. And I mean, you're all, you know, using the, the five secrets very, um, you know, expertly. And Matt, uh, it felt like you were more focusing on the, uh, I feel statements and the stroking, um, that was my impression. Maybe you may disagree with me. What uh, What would you say? I, I noticed that too. It was a good uh, tag team combination, I thought. And uh, I feel very close to Marilyn, so it's very easy for me uh, to admire her, uh, to use the affirmation or stroking uh, uh, method. And also, I just was legitimately feeling the feelings that I was having. And I had to get them out and had to talk about some of the uh, experiences I was having emotionally and hearing about yeah. um, dear colleague of mine being diagnosed with with cancer yeah and uh, of course as people listen to this segment since we're focusing on getting the information and having Marilyn talk about her uh, pain and her problems uh, people may think by the time you know uh, this podcast ends that well this is really hopeless almost because it, we're focusing on the negative. Um, so do you have any words of wisdom for our listeners about what's going to come next? Well, just a, a quick one, as I think during the empathy phase, and I, I agree that what Matt did was just really beautiful, the, the, the compassion and the warmth, as well as summarizing the patient's negative thoughts and feelings. And I think in the empathy phase, you want to go with the patient to the gates of hell. And errors that therapists typically make in empathy phase of the session is to try to cheer the patient up or reassure the patient or, or help the patient in yeah. some way, and that usually comes across as very uh, irritating and, and annoying to, 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 to patients, and, and empathy is really very simple, although most therapists don't do a good job of it, uh, 
but it, it's 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 really just reflecting back what the what the patient is telling you, what the thoughts are, what the feelings are, and and to show some some acceptance of that, and to give the patient a, a place to to cry, to 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 feel those those feelings without trying to do anything to to change anything. Later in the session, we we we'll bring in some powerful tools for change, but but it, it's 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 not a good idea, I don't think, to to do that during the empathy phase. Now. With my having said that, I think the ther- therapists who are listening who want to learn how to do this would probably need to get some training to learn how to do it because you hear these words and, and then I see therapists still making those mistakes of, of trying to uh, jump, jump in and reassure. And also what Matt did was, was not like trying to, to reassure or cheer up Marilyn. That's a subtle point, but yes. it was just speaking from the heart of, right. of, of feeling sadness and compassion and, and ab, admir, admiration. Yeah, it's about connecting, right? Yeah. I agree with you, David. It's so, so true that... Um, And it was true for me, too, that when I was trying to learn therapy, that my instinct was to try to help, fix, cheer up, and that that always backfired. It came across as uh, sort of demanding or critical or a put down. Yeah, uh, or patronizing. Yeah, it took practice to to let go of those habits. Um, But I I also think it reflects well on those individuals that their intention is really good. They really really want the best uh, outcome, but they're going about it in a way uh, that's not effective. Yeah. And uh, one thing I noticed that uh, you you brought the the empathy part to a close by asking Marilyn, do you feel like we're we're getting you that you've been heard? Yeah, and we could have actually said, are we getting an A, a B, a C? Yeah, I often do that. It's a little embarrassing to do that, but patients will be be honest with you. But it it seemed like uh, like we were all there together so I didn't go that extra extra, extra step yeah. but before you go on to the next phase of the session which is agenda setting you, you've got to have a warm connection where the patient feels cared about, liked, admired accepted and really feels that, that you've heard what they have, have, have to say and sometimes patients will say I'm not ready to go on yet I need more time to talk yeah. and, be, and be listened to and that's, that's fine too yeah would you like to add something, Marilyn? I just really experienced an incredible amount of empathy um, from both Matt and David. And that really, um, number one, settled me into the session and also provided me with um, hope that, you know, I'm being understood, I'm being seen, and um, this is this is really going to be helpful today. All right. Well... Without further ado, let's go on and listen. One, one other quick thing is the expectation of the therapist. There's something we don't talk about, but I've, I've heard patients go to therapists, and then that first session therapist will say, this is going to take many months, and we'll be working mm-hmm. together, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And I think we all had the expectation today that something magical was going to happen today mm-hmm. and while on the one hand this puts us under pressure and we're doing measurements to find out if something magical really can happen and many listeners say how can you do work magic with someone who's dying of cancer they're inevitably going to be feeling awful and it's the event itself that's inherently awful but if if, if you have that expectation of course you have to have the tools to back it up but when I work with people now I pretty much expect that something fantastic is going to happen today and we're going to measure it and, and see if that and that can can be a different kind of self-fulfilling prophecy but in my teachings they have a psychiatric residence at stanford uh, and i know matt you've experienced the same thing when you tell them that we can often make depression disappear in a single therapy session or just just a couple of uh, you know therapy sessions they get angry uh, and they think you're a con artist because they've been trained that de- depression builds up over years like a you know some huge mountain and that you have to just shovel it you know shovelful by shovelful for many years before you could begin to expect a change but we recently had this Mark Noble, a neuroscientist, visit our, our Tuesday group. I think he had learned about team therapy from from these podcasts, I suspect. And he's been doing research uh, uh, 
quite relevant to to psychiatry he wanted to come and, and and share it with us but but he said there's there are all kinds of neural precedents for rapid change in in the brain like he says if you touch something it's hot and you pull your hand away the the pain suddenly d- diminishes and similarly he says that these distorted thoughts is like pain physical pain or, or or you know touching something hot and that when you are able to like turn off those distorted negative thoughts that are the cause of the depression and the anxiety of course the the symptoms would rapidly or almost immediately diminish now we'll see if that's possible in this session with someone with a horrible real disastrous problem that 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 isn't just a distortion the cancer is real but would it be true that even in this situation that there's some kind of distorted thoughts that are creating the pain rather than the actual external event all right so thank you for adding this um are we ready to start listening to the testing and empathy segment okay yes why don't we start out i i think we're saddened but but touched and honored and grateful to uh, see you here today Marilyn it's been a little while since we've since we've hung out together and how great to be working with with you today Matt a very very special experience Uh, but why don't you tell us who who you are the listeners know who I am they know who Matt is and tell us who, who who Marilyn is and then we'll We'll dive into the, the topic at hand. Um, my name is Marilyn Coffey. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist with a prior practice in Oakland, California. And I met David um, several years ago at one of the intensives. And I've done other workshops as well on anxiety and post-traumatic stress. And at first I was a member of uh, Dr. Matt May's um, consultation group. Uh, which was uh, mind-boggling and very educationally expansive. And then I um, eventually switched over to David's Tuesday group and have been attending that um, regularly until about a year ago um, when things in my life kind of changed because I had a, a fell and had a, was not able to drive. But I'm very, very grateful to be here today and, and honored to have the opportunity of working with um, both David and Matt. Um, it's a real gift for me, and um, so thank you both. Why don't we just start out with looking at the testing, then we'll kind of look at your daily mood log, and then you can kind of t- tell us what's what's been going on. But I notice uh, on the brief mood survey how depressed are you feeling right now at the beginning of the session, and, and then we'll... Uh, assess these things again at, at the end of the session, but the depression is 17 out of 20, which is a, a real severe uh, depression in in the direction of extreme. You're you're extremely sad and down and feeling extremely uh, hopeless and mm-hmm. discouraged and 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 a, a, a lot of uh, loss of a lot of worthlessness and inferiority and loss of self-esteem and. A, a lot of loss of motivation to do things and uh, a, a great loss of uh, pleasure and satisfaction in life. And the suicidal urges is, is zero. The anxiety is 20 out of 20, indicating the most intense anxiety uh, a human being is capable of, of experiencing. And the, the anger uh, is is 18 out of 20. And just as an aside, in terms of perhaps making a, a persuasive point for, for for therapists to to use either the brief mood survey or other kind of assessment instruments in, in therapy, our, our perceptions of how people feel inside are, are you know the, the research that I've done therapist perceptions are pretty much less than ten percent accurate, and and what that means from a practical point of view is you won't know how your patient is feeling. You think you do, but you don't. And if we like met you today and, you know, we, we just had some uh, pastry upstairs. We've been laughing and joking and having a, a happy time of it. You, you would have no idea that you, your feelings inside were this uh, incredibly uh, uh, s- severe and overwhelming. And then on the positive feelings, <clears throat> uh, which goes from zero to 40, is an eight and indicating almost no positive f- feelings whatsoever, just a, a little bit of uh, 
you know, somewhat I, I'm feeling good about myself. I feel somewhat close to people, uh, somewhat motivated to do things, not at all worthwhile, not at all calm or, or, or relaxed. And ideally, the, these things would be in the allot and, and extremely type of range. And to, why, why don't you, you tell us what, what, what's been going on? I know you've got some shocking news, uh, you know, a month or, or, or two ago, and we have your, your daily mood log. We can go over here in just, just a minute or two uh, as well. Um, well, last March, um, I had a cough, and I was coughing up green gunk. And I noticed sometimes I was experiencing um, some shortness of breath, which I had never experienced before in my life, even when I was sitting down um, watching TV. So it became a, a concern. And so I made an appointment with my doctor um, who assumed that I had bronchitis again and so sent me for a chest X-ray um, so that she could prescribe antibiotics if indeed I did have bronchitis. And because I was feeling so good, I never really felt sick. I kind of put off the chest x-ray for a week or two and was on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland and passed by the um, x-ray place and said, you know what, the Sam Hill, go get the chest x-ray. So I went and got the chest x-ray. And the technician said to me, well, the doctor here wants to see you, which really surprised me. I'd never had that before. And when I went to see the doctor, he had my chest x-rays on a screen and says, uh, you have lung cancer, and I can't even see your left lung because it's uh, full of fluid. Um, and I was in complete disbelief. I've never smoked in my life, um, and uh, and I was f still feeling good. I mean, I had this cough. I had a little bit of shortness of breath, sometimes more severe if I was taking my dog for a walk. Um, so I called my primary care physician, went to see her, and she said, you need to go to Alta Bates Hospital ER right away. Um, so I went into the ER, and a friend of mine joined me. And the ER doctor confirmed that I had lung cancer and sent me upstairs to have the drainage in my left lung uh, taken care of. So they put a needle in my back, which was painful. Was it horrible? It was, it, was, it, was, it was painful. It was horrible, yeah. Um, but um, once the needle was in, it was, you know, uncomfortable but uh, bearable. I mean, I remember holding the nurses. The nurse was there, and I <laughs> was probably shaking her hand like Donald Trump does. <laughs> you know? um, and when I looked up, um, I saw two large uh, containers of blood that they had taken from my lungs. And he again confirmed that I had um, probably stage, or, you know, cancer. And then I had a chest X-ray at some point. I get confused, but at some point I was diagnosed with stage four um, non-smokers lung disease that was incurable and uh, was referred to an oncologist in Berkeley um, who, again, confirmed that diagnosis. And um, eventually um, he put me on a medication called Tarceva. And when I was first told I was going to be given Tarceva, I called the insurance company and was told that my copay was going to be $3,000, um, which I obviously could not pay. And I got hysterical on the phone talking to the insurance person. So see, she eventually talked to the social worker at the cancer place. And again, when I walked into the cancer place at Alta Bates, I mean, at Herrick, I was in complete disbelief because people there looked really, really sick. And I had never felt sick. Um, so it was really scary um, for me. And... Um, terrifying. So um, the, the, the insurance people talked to the social worker, and so eventually I was able to get the Tarceva, which I've been taking now for about a month. I did go to Stanford for a second opinion and um, felt much more treated competently by uh, two oncology physicians and an oncology nurse who spent like three hours with me, all of whom listened to my lungs and confirmed that they also would have prescribed Terceva and said that if the Terceva doesn't work, that they would have other options of treatment for me. So I left there feeling a bit more hopeful, but still really scared because I, I still can't believe I have cancer because I feel so so well. Um, and there's, I mean, there's a history of 
of cancer. My mother, my mother lived till she was 90. She died of lung cancer that had metastasized to her brain. My father died at 68 of a massive heart attack. Um, my, my father's sisters both lived well into their 80s. And um, my mother's one brother lived into his 80s. The other brother died very young um, of prostate cancer. But, I mean, I was expecting to live a long life. I wasn't expecting to be diagnosed at this age with uh, an incurable disease. And it's been really hard. Marilyn, my, my heart is uh, breaking as you're describing uh, this such a disturbing experience on so many different levels, terrifying, really hard to believe. Just uh, you, you express that sense of uh, it's just horrifying to be well one day, to not be in any distress, and you've never felt sick, and then to be handed a diagnosis that, that was, I understand, likely to rob you of your life through no fault of your own. You never smoked. And um, and then to go through these disturbing and kind of painful procedures, draining blood out of your chest. And, um, you know, I, we, we'd emailed uh, back and forth. And when I woke up this morning and I thought of you, um, tears came to my eyes because I, I have so much respect and admiration for you Um You've got to be one of the kindest, um, uh, most patient, thoughtful, gentle people I have ever met, and um, you've all you, for in, in all the teaching groups uh, for years. You would come and you would always be front and center, right on my right side. We've it's nice to <laughs> reverse that role a little bit today. I'm I'm at your right side today, so it's uh, really a pleasure uh, for me to be with you. To talk talk about this with you. Thank you. No, thank you. I forgot to mention that um, also during this time I did have um, lung surgery because um, my left lung had filled up again with fluid. So I was um, at um, Merritt Hospital in Oakland um, with a lung specialist, and they drained um, the fluid again from my lung, and then he stretched out my left lung. So I was in intensive care for two days, and then moved upstairs. Um, and had these tubes um, in my left side for a couple of days, and then um, came home. And um, but um, and one of the nice things I liked about being at Merritt Hospital is I, I could have my dog there. So um, oh really? Yeah. Wow. People people because it was a private room, and many patients on that particular unit was a cardiac care unit as well as a, a lung care unit had their dogs with them. So my friend Danielle um, brought Harvey. I mean Maggie. So it was nice having Maggie there and, and kind of surprising to see various people show up that I, I didn't expect. So, but, um, you know, I guess having the surgery kind of reinforced the fact that I, I it's true, you have lung cancer, lung, lung cancer. And, um, yeah. So really, really, really important to have that support. Yeah. Um, it was very important. One, one thing that you said was that it was frustrating that the cost of the treatment was something that you couldn't afford. And uh, that that's upsetting to me as well. Um, when you learned about that, you said you became hysterical on the phone, that you wouldn't have access to a, a potentially a life, life-saving or mm-hmm. prolonging uh, treatment. And I wonder, um, could you, what, what was that like for you? It was terrifying, and I remember telling the woman from the insurance company, you know, sobbing, that my, my life is on the line here. I mean, I need this medication. This is the only hope that's been given to me so far by an oncology um, doctor. And, um, you know, if I have to put it on my credit card, I will, but, you know, I can't afford to go into debt because I live on a very fixed income since I'm retired. And so somehow it was worked out with the, the, the doctor, the oncology doctor in Berkeley had free samples. So I was able to get the Tarsiva from the social worker at the oncology office, and then I got the Tarsiva in the mail, um, and will continue to do so. And because now my disease is considered catastrophic, I love the language they use. Um, very, you know, doesn't provide much hope for me, at least in my mind. Um, so I am getting the medication. I've been taking it, and um, when I saw my primary care physician this week. She said that my left lung sounded much better, 
Um, and because I have a broke out in a rash on my face from the medication, from the medication, um, the oncology doctor and the doctors at Stanford said that's was a hopeful sign that the medication is probably working. Um, so I'll know more. I get a PET scan on the 19th. I see the oncology in Berkeley on the 22nd, and hopefully they'll know whether or not the medication in, is in fact working. Then I'm back in Stanford the week following the 22nd appointment. And the other thing I need to add through all of this is um, this has thrown me into a huge um, dark night of the soul crisis um, because I'm really terrified of dying and I'm really doubting whether or not there's a God or is there an afterlife. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if I feel duped by um, religion. And I, and I have more spirituality books in my house than I do psychotherapy books, which is interesting. And when I look at all the books written on at least in my living room by these spiritual authors, I wonder, are these people all delusional? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's it's been a roller coaster ride. It really has been. And I have. Your, and your intelligence is a bit of a curse. <laughs> in, the, in that regard, right? Yes. Uh, critical, critical thinking. I feel so uh, sad and shocked as well. I, I can imagine when you were in a panic, you were feeling some rage at the same time. Yes. And uh, I don't mean to turn this into something uh, po- political, but I, I just I feel like there's an inherent conflict of interest between healthcare and free enterprise. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt for a long time that the uh, we, we need a national national health health insurance and i know it's such a political thing right right now but i i, I just mm-hmm. it just uh, it enrages me uh, uh that uh, we have we have the the kind of system we have i'm going to be right back i our tissue but my tissue thing is right around the corner here oh you've got some okay uh, plant ahead uh, the, the uh, uh you, you you gave us a uh, a daily mood log here that we can uh, go over recording your negative uh, thoughts and feelings, Mar- Marilyn. Uh, and the upsetting event at the top is just being uh, diagnosed with incurable stage four non-smoker lung cancer. And then you recorded your your feelings. Um, the uh, in this first couple ones here, which were the you didn't uh, they all all so sad oh, okay. blue depressed down and happy all okay so that whole category of depression is a hundred percent plus all the anxiety feelings are a hundred percent plus guilty remorseful bad ashamed and what's this word here oh, because of my alcoholism um, oh yeah, yeah. a hundred and then feeling inferior and defective, what, 100? And then lonely, alone, and abandoned, 100. Uh, and hopeless, discouraged, pessimistic, and despairing, 100. Frustrated, stuck, thwarted, and defeated, 100. Angry, mad, resentful, annoyed, irritated, upset, furious, 100. And was there a second page to, to, in addition to this back, the back here? Because I thought I had seen a... a there it is. Another okay. one. Yeah. There, there we go. And then your negative thoughts, and you believed all of these 100. This cannot be true. I, I, I've never smoked. Uh, number two, I'm, I'm going to die sooner than, than later. Number three, I'm terrified of dying. Um, number, uh, and that's again 100%. And then, uh, is, is there a God? Uh, and that's a kind of a, a question, and we could convert that to a statement. There might, there might not be a god, or I not. doubt there is a god. Yeah. Um, and uh, is there life after death? Uh, uh, there is no life after death. One hundred. Um, and I, I cannot believe I have cancer. Uh, hundred. I've, I've wasted a lot of time in my life because of my alcoholism. Uh, I've been duped by religions and religion. Uh, I don't want to have cancer. Uh, let's see, I've never... Uh, ever had a partner in my Oh, life. yes, yes, I'll never... Yes. Never had a partner. Yeah, I'll, I'll never have a, a, a life uh, partner. It's a sad one. And I'm not as, as spiritual as as others, 100%. 100%. And... Uh, uh, the um, one, you know, the very personal aspect of this is, uh, 
overwhelming and uh, uh, you know d d devastating. Um, but on a but on another level, um, the the cognitive model is saying that uh, the facts of our life don't don't create uh, our, our feelings. It, it, it's our thoughts about about them and. That's something that's very hard for people to grasp or, or understand. It kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And sometimes uh, people have said, yeah, but how about if say, somebody's diagnosed with, with terminal ca cancer? C certainly their, their depression is, is going to be real and caused by the actual event rather than the, the thoughts. And so this will give us a chance to put that idea to the test as well as to see if we can reach out to a, a dear friend and, and provide some 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 relief uh, because uh, the, the you might not want to be spending these precious days and and, and months in in, in embroiled in, in these kinds of intense negative emotions and to to be able to feel some some joy some uh, some some love some 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 self esteem and some connection and so we'll we'll see if we'll see if we can make that. That happened today. Um, it, it 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 sounds like um, uh, the uh, that the that part of the meaning of the cancer that that's so upsetting to you is, is that um, you're 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 concerned from a religious point point of view that you know may, maybe there's no God maybe there's there's no afterlife. Um, you're also feeling shame, like I've wasted a lot of my life because of my alcoholism. I know that's been a struggle for you in the in the past. Uh, kind of anger at at at, at religions, um, um, at self criticism, mm. fe feeling like you're not as spiritual as others or as spiritual as you quote should be. Um, uh, and also uh, feeling perhaps the uh, the loss of uh, that, that I'm going to be dying sooner than later because you thought you'd live in your 80s and 90s and uh, have a nice long life, and all of a sudden you're looking at uh, you know months rather than than years. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I'm just really uh, floored uh, by by this myself and I noticed um, in addition to this morning feeling very tearful and and sad thinking of um, the work we'd be doing today and, and the significance of your diagnosis I also felt en enraged and angry that you would be taken from us prematurely and um, uh, and then I felt a little embarrassed like what what's the purpose of feeling angry why that's not going to change anything. And then I, I realized I still wanted to protest. I still <laughs> wanted to, to feel that, that anger. On, and even if that wouldn't change uh, the, the outcome, I still wanted to hold up my picket and, and say, this isn't fair. This isn't right. Uh, you didn't do anything wrong. You're one of the most beautiful people I've ever met. And I wish, uh, wish for a miracle. And, and this has challenged your faith. This is, I, I know that um, a lot of times you come back to our teaching group after a little time away at, at a monastery. Mm -hmm. And that simple pleasures there of pulling carrots, making dinner, um, brought you so much peace mm -hmm. and, and joy. And uh, it was like a real foundation. You have more spirituality books uh, in your apartment than, than uh, psychotherapy books. And so to be robbed of that, too, to have doubt about that must be very disturbing to you mm -hmm. and scary. Yes, it is. When you think back on some of the times we've spent together, what what, what comes to mind? Laughing a lot. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think we'll do that today. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Um, um, having good meals, having good conversation, um, feeling really safe with both of you that I can... Um, really be who I am and share who I am, which is really hard for me to do, and to um, be able to ask for help. Um, and I've also enjoyed um, 
you know, being at the intensives with you, David, and vol- volunteering and um, embarrassed at times being called to the stage to, to work with you, but also being honored um, by that. Oh, we had some tough ones, didn't we? Yes, we did. <laughs> Very tough ones. And then we had fun in L.A. at the Evolution Workshop on that was Empathy. Great. Uh, you, you said you, it's, it's hard for you to share who you really are. Did you say something like that just now? Um. I guess because I don't believe in myself, or I, again, I feel like I have um, have wasted my life because of my drinking, and um, it's hard for me to acknowledge, um, or to accept, I guess, um, acknowledge and accept the uh, the uh, gifts that, you know, people have mentioned, um, and um, I think part of it's just, you know, growing up in, a, in an environment where I was constantly being criticized and could live up to the expectations, especially of my mother. So I always felt less than, less than, less than. Um, and that's always been very, very strong. Um, so, um, which is why sometimes it, it has boggled my mind that I um, have, have, have the, the what I perceive to be, the, the, and I believe to be to be true, the respect of both uh, you, David, and you, Matt. Um, it's uh, it boggles my mind, and I'm grateful for it. How are you feeling right now? How are we doing in terms of understanding how you're feeling today and how you've been feeling? Um, I really I feel a lot of care, and um, I really feel that. And being understood and that you're getting what I'm going through, because um, it really is um, really terrifying. I mean, I, this is really hard, and I, I really appreciate the uh, the love that I'm I'm feeling from the two of you, um, and I, I I can feel it, and I can also see it in your faces. All right, so that was uh, the uh, testing and empathy segment of Marilyn's live session. Um, in our next episode, we'll be hearing the agenda setting part. And until then, um, we'll see you next time. Bye bye. So long. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns's website at feelinggood.com where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. Theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.